Psalms 19 verse 7 says that the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And so if you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 24 through 25 this morning, which will serve as Peter's final section regarding the evangelistic impact that enduring goodness has in the lives of the lost. See, in this section on essential Christianity that we've subtitled Everyday Evangelism 101, Peter's been repeatedly telling us as followers of Christ that we ought to do good, we ought to show good deeds, and we ought to evidence good conduct and behavior. We see this in chapter 2, verse 12, and verse 15, chapter 3, verse 1, verse 6, and verses 16 through 17. In other words, Peter's been telling us what we ought to do in order to underline the gospel message that we declare and in order to adorn the message of the gospel. We ought to do good Peter's also been in the process of telling us how we ought to do good, and that is by verse 13, being subject properly to those who are in authority over us, and also by verse 17, by honoring everyone, loving the brotherhood, and fearing God, even in the face of hardships and difficulties. That's the outline that Peter is working us through. So in other words, in order to be about the mission of everyday evangelism, what ought we to do? We ought to do good. How ought we to do it? By being subject, honoring everyone, loving the brotherhood, and fearing God, even in the face of adversity. But why ought we to do it? In other words, why, when it comes to everyday evangelism, why is showing enduring goodness in these four ways that Peter's slowly been walking us through, why is it so important? I mean, aren't we kind of making a mountain out of a molehill here? How hard can evangelism be, right? It's just talking to other people about Jesus. So why do we need to consider in all of this our own hearts in regards to subjection, respect, love, and reverence? How important is all this really in our declaration of the gospel to the lost? What's the evangelistic impact that's really made in the lives of unbelievers when we demonstrate before them enduring goodness? Well, Peter's been showing us ever since verse 19 of chapter 2 that there's a threefold positive impact that's made to our evangelism when we show enduring goodness to others in spite of difficulties. The first, recorded in verses 19 through 20, is that enduring goodness radiates grace. Enduring goodness radiates grace. It shows a rebellious, disrespectful, hate-filled, and irreverent world that you've been transformed set free, made new by the saving grace of God in Christ. It cures people of their agnosticism when they see us operating in a way that is completely foreign and alien to their deep felt feelings and sentimentalities. They recognize that we've been changed from the inside out. So that adorns the gospel because it radiates grace. The second impact that enduring goodness has on our evangelism is that it reflects Jesus We saw this last week in verses 21 through 23. When we're sinned against and lied about and reviled and hated and threatened and yet don't respond in kind but rather show steadfast, proper subjection, respect, love and reverence in the face of all that unjust treatment. When we act like that, in those moments we are reflecting the image of Christ himself by our deeds, the very Christ that our enemies need to begin to see if they're ever going to be saved. 
we, you and I, may just be the very first glimpse into the grace and goodness of the Lord for them, who by his grace and goodness saved us. So that adorns the gospel because it reflects Jesus. And so enduring goodness radiates grace, enduring goodness reflects Jesus, and finally, as we're going to see in verses 24 through 25 this morning, enduring goodness reaches sinners. In other words, it actually has a saving impact on those who are lost. And so, if we want to be about the mission of evangelism every single day, and we want to make sure that our lives are supporting that and underlining the very gospel that you and I are called to proclaim to a lost and dying world, then we need to make sure that we are committed to showing enduring goodness no matter the cost. Because enduring goodness radiates grace, it reflects Jesus, and it reaches sinners. It reaches sinners. So with that in mind, let's read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. The Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words to us today. Verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Verse 19, For this is a gracious thing, When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Verse 21. For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and lived to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the Word of God, which though princes persecute us without cause, we will stand ever in awe of. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word today. I thank you for the opportunity to be back teaching it. Father, I pray that you would teach us your word today. Father, I pray that your spirit would take what you have revealed in your word and that you would use a fallible and fallen man's mouth to proclaim your pure and spotless word. I pray that Christ would be exalted today. And Father, I pray that we would look once, upon, once again upon the example of Christ and consider the impact that it had in our own lives so that we might consider the impact of our own Christ-like imitation might have on the lives of those who are around us. Help us to follow in Christ's footsteps. Make us more like Jesus, Father, from the heart so that we might be of some earthly good for the salvation of the lost. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So after Peter shows us that enduring goodness radiates grace and reflects Jesus, he then ties it directly to the issue of evangelism by showing us that enduring goodness reaches sinners. That's in verses 24 through 25. Enduring goodness reaches sinners. And I want you to see the connection here. Right after Peter tells us that Christ's enduring goodness is an example for us, he then tells us the saving effect that Christ's enduring goodness had for us. By writing in verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Enduring goodness reaches sinners. It is effective. How do we know that? Because enduring goodness reached to us. That's Peter's point. And Peter has actually already introduced this topic earlier in verse 21 through two very important words that I didn't touch on now and I'm going to touch on this morning. Back in verse 21, Christ, or Peter writes, Christ also suffered, here it is, for you. Leaving you an example. For you. Christ's enduring goodness in the face of opposition had a salvific effect for you. And Peter now returns to that very same idea and develops it more fully in these two verses before us this morning. When we look to Jesus, who is our example in how to face unjust suffering, we see that Christ's unjust suffering had a saving effect on us who once hated him. Just look at these verses. This is, how we, this is how we approach unjust suffering in the face of our enemies. We handle it like Christ did as how Christ handled us. It says, He Himself bore whose sins? Our sins in His own body on the tree that who might die to sin? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His stripes, who have been healed? You have been healed. Verse 25, for who were straying like sheep, you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of whose souls? Your souls. See, the implication is clear. Christ's commitment to show enduring goodness in the face of suffering had a saving effect on us, and our commitment to show enduring goodness in the face of suffering has a saving effect on others as well. Not in terms of accomplishing a way of salvation, which was what Christ did, but in terms of accenting the way of salvation. Yes, absolutely for us. Christ's commitment to do good no matter the cost purchased salvation for us And our commitment to do good no matter the cost points to salvation for others. And so as proof that enduring goodness reaches sinners, let's consider in the example of Christ this morning in these passages how enduring goodness reached to us. And what we're going to see in these verses before us today are three ways in which the enduring goodness of Christ has transformed our own lives. And I want you to think about this this morning as we go through this passage. We're going to find out that Christ's enduring goodness even in the face of opposition, transformed our own lives and led us to a new life of righteousness, holiness, and submission. And I want you to think about this morning. Do not these changes that have happened to us in Christ Jesus, do they not describe the very transformation that you would like to see in the world around you and in the authorities that are over you? Wouldn't you love to see them live lives of righteousness, wholeness, 
and submission to Christ. Well then, Christ is your example to follow in His steps. That's Peter's argument. If you want to be used by God to produce the same change in others that Christ first produced in you, then step exactly where Christ stepped and follow the same path that Christ tread. When we follow His example in enduring goodness, it leads to His results. And what are those results? Well, first, the enduring goodness of Christ in the face of dishonesty, hatred, dishonor, and cruelty led us to a new life of righteousness for us. That's at the beginning of verse 24. Peter writes this. He says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now that's a pretty good change, wouldn't you say? To take people who are given over to the pursuit of sin and to change them into people who are given over into the pursuit of righteousness. Listen, that is the dramatic transformation that God works in the heart of every soul who trusts in Christ. It's a miracle of the new birth. God makes slaves of sin into slaves of righteousness for His name's sake. And he does it based upon the merits of something that Christ did in enduring goodness. Something that Christ has done himself. That's what Peter says. Peter writes, he himself. This is Jesus that we're talking about. The pure and precious one of chapter 1 verse 19. The pure and perfect and sinless one of chapter 2 verse 22. The coming and kingly one of chapter 1, verses 7 through 8. Jesus himself, the center of all heavenly glory, wonder, worship, and affection. Our Lord Jesus Christ, he served us himself. Himself, of his own will and his own desire. The pure and spotless lamb, Jesus, bore our sins in his own body on the tree. He got personally involved in the salvation of sinners. His entire person was wrapped up in the act. And again, I've talked about this several times in the past. We think evangelism is just something that we do, not something that we are. We want to separate it from ourselves. Christ himself couldn't do that. Neither can you. Neither can you. He did this himself. Evangelism involves the entirety of our being, not just our mouths, it involves our heart. Jesus did this himself. Jesus didn't need to be convinced or coerced into that role of proper submission, respect, love, and reverence. He did, he did not have to be forced into doing good in the face of suffering. He did it all willingly. As Philippians 2 7 states, he took upon himself the role of a servant, he did it himself. As John 10, 17-18 says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. What does that mean? It means that Jesus did it himself, all willingly. Of his own will and desire, it says, He himself bore our sins bore our sins. That phrase, bore our sins, is actually both a priestly and a sacrificial expression, by the way. In other words, at the cross, when Jesus Christ bore our sins, Jesus did so as our perfect priest and as our perfect sacrifice. And it is powerful when these two concepts come together in our mind around the person of Jesus. Powerful and necessary, because both address the problem of our sin. You see, ever since the dawn of creation... 
God has made it very clear concerning sin and disobeying God's commandments that the moment you do so, you shall surely die. Genesis 1, uh, 2.17 The death penalty hangs over every single sin and transgression you and I ever commit. The wages of sin is death, as Romans 6.23 says, separation from the blessed presence of God forever. Now that's a problem. Because ever since creation, not only has God made it clear that the penalty of sin is death, but we've also made it clear by both our nature and our choice that we are enslaved to sin. As the preacher says in Ecclesiastes 7.20, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and does not sin. It doesn't exist. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. As Romans 3.23 says. And so once again, that's a problem. Because even as we saw last time in verse 23 god is just he is the judge who judges all things justly and if god's only attribute was justice then we as sinners would all be doomed but here's the wonderful news as we saw throughout chapters one and two god is not only just but he's also great in love and great in mercy and from that he desires to rescue and preserve a people for himself And so throughout Israel's history, in anticipation and in illustration of what was to come in Christ, God provided a way to deal with sin by means of substitutionary priests and sacrifices. And this is what would happen in the Old Testament Levitical worship is this. A priest would place the hand of the sinner upon the head of the sacrifice, symbolizing the transference of guilt from the sinner to the sacrifice. And then the priest would carry the sacrifice and the sin guilt that it bore to the altar where it would then be killed in the sinner's place. And in that moment, not only was justice served since the death penalty was executed upon that sin, but also forgiveness was obtained since the sin of that sinner had been paid for. He could now go free. Now, isn't that beautiful? The only problem is there's still two issues with that process. One the priest handling that sacrifice was always a sinner. Which means he could never offer up a perfect sacrifice because the moment he got involved in the process, the whole sacrifice became imperfect. And that leads to the second problem. Two, the sacrifice was always deficient. Think about it. The blood of clueless bulls, clueless goats, and clueless sheep could never pay for the sin of willful men. Only a perfect man, free from all sin, could ever take the sin of sinners. Only a perfect man could both offer up and be the perfect sacrifice. Well, through this simple phrase, He Himself bore our sins. Peter tells us that on the cross, Jesus acted as both our perfect priest and our perfect sacrifice. First, Jesus bore our sins as our perfect priest. That word bore literally means to be carried up. It is the action that a priest would do as he carried the sin sacrifice to lay it upon the altar. It's the exact same word used over in Hebrews 7.27 when the author says there of Jesus, he has no need like all the other high priests of old, here it is, to offer up sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because he did this once for all when here it is again, he offered up himself. He only had to offer up one sacrifice once for all. Why? Because he was a perfect priest, a man who committed no sin, as we saw last time in verse 22. He alone, Jesus, among all men, could offer up a perfect sacrifice for sins because he's the perfect priest. 
And what was this perfect sacrifice that Jesus, as the perfect priest, carried to the altar as a payment for our sins? The answer is Himself. As the next phrase says, He Himself bore our sins where? In His own body on the tree. See, Jesus not only offered up our sins as the perfect priest, He bore our sins as the perfect sacrifice. He took upon Himself the guilt and penalty for all of our sins. As Isaiah wrote 700 years before Jesus ever came, the Scripture reading we had read this morning, Isaiah 53, 6, The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Verse 8, He was stricken for the transgression of His people. Verse 10, His soul will make an offering for guilt. Verse 11, He will bear their iniquities. Verse 12, He bore the sins of many. Because He knew no sin, Jesus could take the sins of others. And He did. Have you ever wondered why he was on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was because he bore the guilt for your and my sins on himself. And it pleased the Lord to crush him as he became a curse in our place. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. The perfect sacrifice was himself. The altar was the cross. And there on the cross, it pleased the Lord to crush Him, for in the death of His own Son, God could be both just upon sin and the justifier of everyone who believes in Jesus. And so in this whole discussion about submission and respect and love and reverence, in the midst of this whole discussion about reaching the lost through exhibiting enduring goodness, Peter brings us right back to what really matters. It's the gospel. It's the enduring goodness of Christ and what effect it had on you. And as the perfect priest, Jesus offered up in himself on the cross. And in his own body, he paid the penalty for all the sins of all of those who trust in him. He showed enduring goodness. Why? Because he knew it would have a saving effect. Look at the end of the verse. It says, He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Why? That we might what? Die to sins. Live to righteousness. He died that we might live. This is the gospel. This is the good news of the divine exchange that was accomplished within the Godhead himself. Right? Christ God the Son takes our sin and death, and through faith we take His life and righteousness. As Peter later says in 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. It had a saving effect. And as Paul says over in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Him, that is Jesus, God made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This is the Gospel. It is on the cross. God treated Jesus as if He had lived our lives with all of our sins so that God could then treat us, believers, as if we had lived Christ's life with all of His righteousness. All of our sins were charged to Christ on the cross so that Christ's righteous life could be credited to us. Jesus takes our record of sin and we take His record of righteousness. He takes our blame and we take His blessings. That's the Gospel. 
Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. It is something that He has done, not we ourselves. And I just want to encourage you, even though it's not the main point of Peter's passage, if you have not yet tasted the goodness of this salvation, do so this morning right where you sit. Call out to God in prayer and trust in the power and the perfection of Christ to save you. And He will. He has done all that is necessary. He has borne our sins in His own body on the tree. And look at the change that is wrought in our lives when we submit to Christ in faith. We're given a new life of righteousness. Don't miss this. This is Peter's whole point. Peter says that the result of Christ's enduring goodness to us, even in the face of suffering and death, is that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We might first die to sin, literally to depart from it, and live to righteousness, literally to give ourselves to it. This is the change that Christ's suffering and death has wrought within us. We die to sin and its enslaving power over us. And we live to righteousness and we give ourselves to it. As Romans 7 verse 4 says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order to finally bear fruit for God. In other words, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. This is the change that happens in all those who have been born again. They receive a new life of righteousness. Boy, wouldn't you love to see that transformation in the lives of the lost who are around you? Wouldn't you love to see that transformation in the lives of the authorities that are over you? Then follow in Christ's steps. That's Peter's point. Christ demonstrated enduring goodness in the face of suffering and death so that we might be transformed from sinners into saints. Christ's enduring goodness led to a new life of righteousness for us. Second, the enduring goodness of Christ also led to a new life of wholeness for us. This is the end part of verse 24. The end part of verse 24 where Peter says this, By His wounds you have been healed. Here, Peter is quoting Isaiah 53, verse 5, where it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. So here's the situation. Before we come to Christ, we are spiritually sick. Terminally sick. Sick in the mind, sick in the heart. See, even though sin is destructive and it destroys the body and the soul and the life and the mind and everything, the Bible says that we are so dead in our sins, we're like dogs returning to our own vomit. In other words, we're like spiritual junkies that are torn apart by an addiction to sin that is going to drag us to eternal death. We were terminally ill. But then Jesus came and by His wounds you've been healed. In other words, you were set free from that destructive cycle. Weren't you in Christ Jesus? You've been given the cure to that terminal way of life, haven't you? And you've been given life and healing in God's name, haven't you? Because this is what happens to those who trust in Jesus. You're born again and you're no longer addicted to the things that lead to shame and and death. You become desirous of the things that lead to righteousness and eternal life in Christ. 
If you haven't experienced this healing that's found in Christ alone, if you don't know about this spiritual wholeness and healing that comes to those who trust in Him, then again, even though that's not Peter's main point, I urge you this morning right where you sit to acknowledge your sin before God and ask Him to heal you of that deadly addiction to sin by the merits of Christ. Your problem is not your actions. Your problem is the heart which is addicted to those actions. You must be born again. You must be made new through faith in Christ Jesus. You must be transformed. And if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be. You will be healed. Sin's destructive, dominating power over you will be broken. You'll be healed. And notice what made the difference. What made the difference for us? It was Christ's wounds, Peter writes. By His wounds, you were healed. You know what that word wounds refers to? It refers to the oozing welts and bruises that slaves that were mentioned in verse 18 received from unjust masters and that believers on the whole were starting to receive in the Roman Empire from unjust authorities when they were scourged and whipped simply for being followers of Jesus. And you see the point that Peter's making here. He's talking to all these believers, slaves and otherwise, And all of them are starting to get unjustly whipped and flogged for no reasons of their own. No matter which way they turn, if they're a Jew, from their Jewish authorities. If they're a Gentile, from their Roman authorities. If they're a slave, from their vocational authorities. And they cannot escape it. Scripture says that if you can escape it, you should. 1 Corinthians 7.21 says, but here in this situation, these believers can't. They can't go to another place of employment. They're literally slaves. And they can't go to another country. Rome rules the entire world. And so across the board, these believers were starting to experience inescapable, unjust suffering simply for being Christians. And no doubt they're starting to ask at this point, why? Why should I have to endure this? Why should I have to endure all this inescapable, unjust suffering? And Peter's response is, well, maybe one thing that God's doing is leading people to Christ because by Christ's wounds, you were healed. And you want that same healing for those who are persecuting you, don't you? You want them to find kindness and forgiveness at the hands of Jesus, don't you? And you want even the person who's whipping you right now to find a new life of righteousness and wholeness in him. Don't you? Then endure this unjust suffering the way Jesus did, that they might see a glimpse of Jesus in you. Wow. But that's Peter's point. This is your chance, believer, Peter saying, to love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. This is your chance, believer, as Jesus said in Luke 27-28, through to bless those who curse you and pray for those who are persecuting you. This is your chance, Peter's saying, to show yourself as a child of the Most High God who is kind to both the ungrateful and the evil. You see, there might actually be a salvific effect if you respond to this unjust suffering how Christ did. by showing enduring goodness, even in the face of unjust suffering, just like Jesus did. His wounds brought about your healing. And as you're in the midst of this inescapable situation, maybe these wounds you're suffering will bring about theirs 
if you show enduring goodness and following Christ's steps. And isn't that all that matters? Really? For this you've been called. And so in considering the evangelistic impact of enduring goodness, we need to remember that the enduring goodness of Christ led to a new life of righteousness and wholeness for us. And not only that, Peter brings us full circle this morning by reminding us that the enduring goodness of God also led to a new life of submission for us. And this is really going full circle. Not only a new life of righteousness and wholeness, but also a new life of submission. This is in verse 25, where Peter writes this. For you were doing what? You were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. You see, we received a new life of submission in Christ. Isaiah 53, verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So that's our problem before we come to Christ, right? We didn't listen to God. We just did whatever we wanted. We were like sheep scattering from the shepherd. We refused to submit to the authority of God in our lives. This is what it means to be lost. But now, since you've trusted in Christ and the benefits of His enduring goodness, even unto death, have been applied to your life, you have now, Peter says, returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. His name is Jesus. As Peter says over in chapter 5, verse 4, He is the chief shepherd. And again, over in Hebrews 13, 20, our Lord Jesus is called the great shepherd of the sheep who has shed His blood for us. Well, here in similar fashion, Jesus is called the shepherd and overseer of your souls, or more literally, your lives. The word shepherd here refers to Jesus' title, and the word overseer refers to Jesus' function. In other words, Jesus is our shepherd, therefore what does he do? He oversees. He watches over the flock, and he tells it where to go and what dangers to avoid. In fact, that word overseer was used as a secular term back then, and it refers to what we might call today a foreman. He was the one in charge of the entire construction effort, the leader who made sure that everything was being done correctly. Well, here Peter says Jesus is our shepherd, and he's our overseer. He's in a position of authority, you might say. And as believers transformed by Jesus, we have done what? We have returned to him. In other words, we've left behind that life of doing whatever we want, whenever we want to do it, however we want to do it. We've abandoned that life of going our own way in the ways that we seem best, in that way that leads to death. And we've returned to Jesus and said, You are my Master. You are my Lord. Just tell me, Jesus, whatever you have to say, and I will do it. Not perfectly, obviously, but characteristically. On the whole, as Romans 6.17 says, when we're born again, we become obedient from the heart. Brothers and sisters, this is the effect that enduring, the, the enduring goodness of Christ, even in the face of suffering and death, has had upon us. It, it, it led us to a new life of submission. You used to be marked, believer, by bitterness and rebellion and insubordination against God and every other authority He put in your life. But now in Christ Jesus, you've been transformed. And you're now marked by peacefulness, respect, and submission towards all the authority all the time, right? No. (laughs) No. Probably not, because that's why Jesus is described here as currently being our shepherd and overseer, right? In other words, we still need one. 
We are still prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And so we need a shepherd and overseer for our souls even now, don't we? In fact, we need our wandering souls shepherded and overseen so much that God has not only given us Christ as our chief shepherd, but Peter's also going to mention later on in chapter 5 that he's given us among the flock pastors and elders as under-shepherds to oversee our souls and exercise the shepherding authority of Christ within the church. God does all of that because whether you want to realize it or not, we are still prone to go our own way and do what we think is best. And that's why Peter reminds us here of the shepherd and overseer of our souls and the new life of submission that you and I have found in Jesus. Submission is a way of life for true believers. And Peter's whole point here is to show us that this new life, this new life of righteousness, wholeness, and submission needs to be demonstrated before a lost and dying world by how we relate to our government, our supervisors, our spouses, our fellow church members, and our spiritual leaders, even in the midst of suffering and hardship. We as Christians must guard ourselves very carefully from thinking, you know what, as a believer, I do whatever I think is best. Whatever I'm comfortable with, right? Whatever I agree with, whatever makes sense to me, that's what I'll do. But I won't do anything until it makes absolute sense to me. That is not the spirit of a believer. No, if you're a follower of Jesus, listen to me. You do whatever your shepherd and overseer says, whether you like it, are comfortable with it, agree with it, understand it, or not. In fact, can I say this? The true measure of your commitment to Christ is not how much you obey him when it makes sense to you and you're comfortable with it. The true measure of your commitment to Christ is how much you obey him even when it doesn't make sense and you're struggling to understand it. That's the measure of your commitment to Christ. That's, whether you, that's when you find out whether Jesus truly is your Lord or not. It's when he tells you to do something that you don't like, aren't comfortable with, and don't fully understand, and yet you simply do it anyway, no matter the consequences, because you recognize, to this I have been called as Christ is my example. So this is the effect that Christ's enduring goodness in the face of suffering and death has had upon us. It was used by God to reach sinners like us and give us a brand new life of righteousness, wholeness, and submission. And what impact might our enduring goodness as those who are in Christ might have on those around us who have yet to come to know him as their own shepherd and overseer of their souls? That's the question Peter wants us to ask. This is a wonderful passage of Scripture when it's understood in context. Just think about it. How often do we enter into hardships and trials in our lives and we immediately start thinking to ourselves, why God? What's the point? Because surely this suffering serves no purpose, is what we think. And Peter tells us here, no, that is not true. There is no wasted moment in the providence of God. Look to Christ. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Yet he was reviled, he was wounded, he suffered, he bled, he died. It was the most unjust, unfair, uncalled for suffering ever to befall anyone in the history of this universe. And yet because he in faith committed himself to enduring goodness no matter the cost, it still had a purpose. 
His suffering led to your salvation. It led to a new life, a new life of righteousness, wholeness, and submission for you. In short, the suffering of Christ imparted to us the life of Christ. And yet we're being told that we're called to live our best life now. Folly and foolishness according to the word of God. Sometimes God calls us to suffer not only for the sake of our own sanctification, but also for the sake of the salvation of the lost who are watching you and I and how we bear up under unjust suffering. It leads, enduring goodness leads to a life of righteousness, wholeness, and submission. Now, isn't that a change that you would like to show to and to see in the people around you? In your government? In the people in your workplace? In your church? Maybe in your home? Wouldn't you like to see them become more righteous and whole and submissive to the authority of Jesus Christ? Then the first step is to show proper subjection, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, and keep on fearing God. Show enduring goodness even in the face of hardship and suffering. Because enduring goodness radiates grace, reflects Jesus, and it reaches sinners. And again, if you're here this morning and have not found this new life in Christ, if you know nothing of this new life of righteousness, wholeness, and submission to Christ's saving sovereignty, then I encourage you today right where you sit, to receive this new life. Confess to God in prayer this morning your trust in what Jesus Christ has done to save you from your sins. For He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's show this to the world this week by how we live. This is the word of God from 1 Peter 2, 24-25, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience in the fervent care of one another until the shepherd and overseer of our souls comes for his own. To that end, as the men come forward for communion today, let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning I thank you for this passage of Scripture. I thank you for the once for all perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I thank you, Father, that our sins, for those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ, I thank you that our sins were nailed to the cross. And we bear them no more because Christ bore them in our place. And I thank you that even as we approach you in prayer today, it is not on the basis of our own merits or work. It is based upon the merit, the work, the righteous life of Jesus Christ in our behalf. We thank you for this. We thank you for Christ's life and death and resurrection. And we thank you for his example. Help us, Father, to follow in his footsteps. And forgive us, Father, where we have failed. 
where we have walked in sin, where we have demonstrated a desire more for that addiction that leads to death than that righteousness that leads to life. When we have demonstrated rebellion rather than subjection to your authority and those you put over us. Help us, Father, to show the life of Christ more faithfully so that we might cause those around us to wonder at the hope that is in us and that we would give them the answer of Jesus with gentleness and respect. Give us grace, Father. The grace that is ours in Christ, in Jesus' name, amen.